From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Welcome to a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Father John Tregilio is in the house, and we're going to empty out the mailbag, take a couple of uh, questions that were phoned in earlier from some of our listeners. And um, so if you'd like to be part of the program, can't help you today. But if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, just send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. But you can be part of the program by listening uh, great answers coming forth from Father Trujillo, as we always get from him. Uh, Michael McCall producing the program. I'm Jack Williams, and our host is he is every Monday, Father John Trujillo, in all of his allergic glory. How are you? Sneezing away. <laughs> there you go. So I'm going to kick things off with a bang here. Tracy in Longmont, Colorado, called into a previous program and didn't get on the air. Oh. And she wants to know if they have found Sodom and Gomorrah. She said there is a preacher traveling around claiming that he has a piece of brimstone from there and is warning people about sin with it. Well, uh, he may indeed have it. I, I don't know. He'd have to get it carbon dated and, uh, anal- and, and, and analyze. Obviously, we believe Sodom and Gomorrah existed and then it got destroyed. So if somebody wants to claim they have uh, an artifact from that or uh, anything else... I mean, it's possible. I mean, uh, I don't know how probable it is, because if you could destroy my fire and brimstone from heaven, I don't think there's going to be much left. Uh, you know, and the only one that actually saw the thing happen is now a pillar of salt. So I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm saying it's highly unlikely. And yet, yeah, there's a moral uh, teaching there. Don't do like they did. <laughs> Um, Joe writes in, he said, I recently spoke to Protestants who say that one must be baptized only in the name of Jesus, and that saying the names of the Trinity is just listing some titles. How do I respond to this? <laughs> well, they got to take it out with Jesus. <laughs> He's the one who said, go baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have to take our Lord at his word, which uh, I know uh, there were instances where people were trying to baptize just in the name of Jesus, but the church from day one said, no, that's not going to work. It's from our Lord's own lips, his divine command. That's how you are to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because, you know, as Christians, we're Trinitarian. We believe that there's one God and three persons. Jesus, who's our Savior, is the second person of that Trinity. Um, But to baptize with just his name would not be baptism. Uh, Grant sends us an email. He says, how can I prove that the Bible is truly inspired word of God and not just written by men? Well, it was written by men, but it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the issue here is nowhere in sacred scripture do you have an explicit uh, sacred author saying, the Holy Spirit sat me down one day and said, write, you know, write this down. That's not how we understand biblical inspiration. Uh, Pope Leo XIII gave a wonderful definition of it, and uh, basically it says that uh, the Holy Spirit uh, used those men uh, who wrote the sacred uh, sacred writings. They're called the sacred authors, and those and they wrote those things and only those things that the Holy Spirit wanted written. Yet they retain their full 
uh, human free will and their human nature. So they use their memory, they use their imagination, and each author used a different literary genre. Some were narrative, like the four Gospels. Others were more poetry. Some uh, have other um, types. So it's because the Christian community, and especially the church, because it was the church that was set up first before the scriptures were written in terms of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew did not take notes at the Sermon on the Mount, and nor did uh, St. Uh, John write things down at the Last Supper. So we have the oral tradition, what uh, was said by the, by the apostles about what Jesus said and did. And then in, in the gospel itself, in Matthew, you know, he, Jesus uses the word church when he gives the keys to St. Peter and says, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And so the church is set up first, and then uh, the sacred scriptures of the, of the New Testament uh, were composed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's the church who decided what books made it and what books uh, were excluded from it. Uh, Henry writes in, Some Protestants told a friend of mine that the original line of Peter ended with Constantine because he made himself head of the church. How would you answer this? No. <laughs> Constantine was never the head of the church. Um, he was the head of the Roman Empire. And, uh, you know, at one point there were two emperors, and uh, he beat the other guy, so he became the sole uh, emperor of the, Ro of the Roman Empire. And he moved the capital from Rome uh, to uh, a town called Byzantium, which was then re uh, renamed after him Constantinople, present-day Istanbul. Uh, he was the secular ruler, but the Pope in Rome was still there, successor of St. Peter, and he did uh, establish um, a patriarchate there. So there's a patriarch of Constantinople, but well after uh, the Patriarch of Rome was established and Alexandria <coughs> and Bethlehem uh, and Antioch. So Constantinople is a later edition, but at no time was Constant Constantine head of the church. And we have a direct lineage from Peter all the way down to Pope Francis. So there's no uh, issue there. Um, Francis asked the question, in the Olivet Discourse, what does Jesus mean when he said some of them would not see death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? It would seem that they died before the second coming, so wouldn't that be a failed prophecy? Well, that's depending on your interpretation, because when he says he, when he would know that some would not see death till they saw coming to his kingdom, I recall very explicitly there were apostles present when Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, that's going into his kingdom. So, uh, you know, it's not stated in such a way that the only interpretation would be that they would see the second coming of Christ here on earth at the end of time. Certainly there were Christians who believed that that was imminent, but the text has some ambiguity to it, and the church has never, you know, given a, a one uh, absolute interpretation to it. So certainly... That's what I think most common uh, teachers of the faith, of the Catholic faith, uh, believe, is that uh, it's still intact, it's still true, and one way of interpreting it would be that, yeah, they, they saw him go up, and he went up to his kingdom uh, as, the, uh, as the Son of God. Eileen would like to know what Catholics believe that the Eucharist is. 
Catholics believe the Holy Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. That the substance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that that is actually Jesus's body and blood because he said so. He said at the Last Supper, "This is my body over the bread," and then he said, "This is my blood over the wine." And later we see in John's Gospel because this. The institution narrative at the Last Supper are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John's Gospel, we have in chapter 6, the uh, Bread of Life discourse, where he says, you must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood. And connecting the dots, when you take John 6 and then connect them to the Last Supper and the the other three synoptic Gospels, now it makes sense. How can you eat his flesh? How can you drink his blood? Unless he changes bread and wine into his body and blood, but under the appearances of bread and wine, so we can consume it without getting grossed out. Before, you know, If I looked in that chalice and I saw human blood, or if I saw human flesh on the patent, I would not be able to consume it. I don't, you know, I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer or Hannibal Lecter or anything like that. I am glad that the appearances of bread and wine remain, but the substance, what makes it what it is, is what Jesus says it is. This is my body, this is my blood. So for Catholics, this is not symbolic, it's not mystical, it's a a real, true, substantial change, and we call it transubstantiation, and we believe it's the real deal. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Father John Tregilio is in the house. We're emptying out the mailbag, answering your email questions, your text questions, uh, questions that may have been phoned in after the show uh, had completed on a particular day. If you would like to be part of a future mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, all you have to do is send us an email. Send that email to openline, all one word, openline at EWTN.com. And then in the subject line, put Father John or Father Tregilio or Father John Tregilio or Open Line Monday or uh, Apologetics, something like that. And we will uh, pose those very questions on a future mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with the Master of the Mount, Father John Tregilio, live from Mount St. Mary's seminary in uh, the beautiful state of Maryland, where Father Tregilio is anxiously awaiting the snow. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But again, just uh, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Monday with Father John. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Very special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking any phone calls today. We've got a really nice item for you at EWTN's religious catalog, the home of Holy Reminders. It's a statue of Our Lady of Cabejo, also known as the Mother of the Word and Our Lady of Sorrow. It was created by uh, EWTN in consultation with Immaculate Begiza a Rwandan genocide survivor and renowned author of the book Our Lady of Cabejo. It's made of fiberglass and hand-painted 
With great attention to detail, including the Chaplet of Seven Sorrows and the beautifully colored carpet of flowers under Our Lady's feet, Our Lady of Cabello became the first and only Vatican-approved Marian site in all of the continent of Africa. To learn more about this apparition, be sure to add Immaculate's book to your order. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping, uh, continental U.S. only, and use the code FREE at checkout. Back to the mailbag we go. And Cindy would like to know, can you explain the Catholic teaching on the Holy Spirit? Okay, well, the Catholic Church, but not just us, <laughs> most mainline Christians and the Eastern Orthodox, we share our belief that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity. And that means that the Holy Spirit, God the Father and God the Son, all three share the same divine nature. That means they have the same divine intellect, the same divine will. Therefore, what one knows, all three know. What one wills, all three will. So the Holy Spirit is not subservient to the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but there is no chronology of time. They all existed from eternity. There was no beginning or end. And therefore, the Holy Spirit is as equal to God the Father as he is to God the Son, and the God the Son equally to the Holy Spirit and to God the Father. The Holy Spirit... In terms of um, salvation history, uh, we see very manifest at Pentecost, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit was not there when God the Father created, and it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't there when God the Son redeemed us on uh, Calvary. It's just that our puny, inf uh, finite minds need to, what we call, appropriate certain divine works to a different person of the Trinity, but you know they're distinct, not separate. That was what uh, St. Patrick was teaching the pagans in Ireland when he showed them the, the shamrock, you know, the three little leaves there. But uh, it's not the perfect analogy because the Holy Spirit is not a part. Uh, the Holy Spirit is God as much as the, God the Father and God the Son. So the Holy Spirit inspired the sacred authors uh, to write sacred scripture. The Holy Spirit is given to us at baptism, uh, but in a very special way at confirmation. The Holy Spirit's invoked at every Mass when the priest extends his hands over the bread and wine before the consecration. Uh, the Holy Spirit's invoked when uh, a man's ordained to the diaconate, the priesthood, or uh, to the episcopacy. Um, you know, so the Holy Spirit is as much divine as the other two, and yet we don't want to say there's three gods. It's just one God, three persons. Here's a great question. I love this one. Heather wants to know... <laughs> Does the devil know that the Lord is omnipotent and omniscient since he's leading a rebellion against God? <laughs> You'd have to ask, you wonder, you know. Um, the angels, before they fell, and that includes uh, Lucifer, before he became the devil, uh, everything they knew, they knew all at one time because it's infused knowledge. So uh, theologians speculate, yeah, yeah, the, the, the devil knew that... Uh, and knows that God is the supreme being. He is omnipotent. He's uh, omnipresent. Um, he's omniscient. He knows everything. So it's pure audacity and pride to think, not that he could overthrow God, because that would make no sense, and the, the devil's not irrational. Uh, he's not insane. But he has a free will, and he, had a, he either freely 
surrendered to the will of God or he you know, refused dominion of God, and that's what happened. So his rebellion wasn't against that he wanted to kick out God, but that he didn't want to serve. That was you know, John Milton, the English poet, you know, he coined that phrase in, in uh, Paradise Lost, you know, far better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Well, guess what? He reigns in hell, but hell's a horrible place, and he could have been serving in a gorgeous, pleasant place called heaven. Uh, again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Graham writes in, why is it that the Catholic Church does not promote Bible studies? We do. <laughs> we do. <clears throat> Most parishes I know, I, I uh, had one in both of my parishes. I was pastor for 16 years in, in uh, Harrisburg Diocese and uh, our Lady of Good Counsel in, in Marysville and St. Bernadette and Duncannon. Some parishes, there's just not interest, but that doesn't mean that the the priest isn't willing to provide it. But remember, every Mass, we have the reading of sacred scripture. And at every Sunday Mass, especially, a homily is required, it's demanded. And we're told, uh, you know, as priests and deacons, that we should preach on the sacred word. Um, therefore, you know, that's a form of Bible study, but we don't tell people they can't, you know, read the Bible. We want them to read the Bible. Uh, we want them to uh, attend Bible study. It's just that, um, you know, for whatever reason, it's not as popular as you might find in other churches, but that's not the fault of the, of the Catholic Church. It's not the fault of the pastor. Uh, it's just that some Catholics, you know, don't see an urgency, and I, I think we're trying to correct that and saying, look, it's not either or. It's not you. either you read the catechism or you read the Bible. We want people to do both. Let's take a listen to one of our listener comment line calls. My name is Don here in Omaha, and uh, I have a question. If an older person has a uh, heart chest pain, it normally would call an ambulance, is it permissible just to not call and, and uh, like similar to do not resuscitate? I don't know how many people have this question, but uh, if you've got an answer, I'd like to hear it. Oh, that, that's uh, a good question because when I was hospital chaplain, um, you know, at two hospitals in Harrisburg, but even as a parish priest, and I've ex had experience even here at the seminary where uh, someone I knew at the hospital or the nursing home, or someone at home, if you have a terminal illness where um, death is is not only inevitable but is imminent, um, you can uh, embrace a do not resuscitate um, order, which they can put, especially at the nursing home and at uh, the hospital. At home, uh, if you have uh, hospice, you can make the same request. As long as you know, it's not a situation where you're, you're, that's the only issue is that you're having a heart attack and otherwise you're in reasonably good health and you're still um, young enough that you, you know, have a probable life in you for, for some years yet to come. And especially if you don't have responsibilities like you're a, a spouse or you're a parent. So if you're uh, elderly and you've got uh, terminal cancer uh, or, you know, you're like, many cases at the nursing home, some of these poor women, they have osteoporosis where their ribs are so frail that if you try to do CPR on them, you're going to crush their ribs and they're going to be worse off than uh, just having the heart attack and, and passing away. So that's the provision there is uh, what's the reasonable uh, prognosis of them surviving and what's the quality of life 
they would have, you know, if you uh, do CPR. So always consult uh, with your parish priest to see what your particular case might be. Uh, interesting email from Dan, who I think is closer to being Catholic than he realizes. He uh-huh. says, where in the Bible does it say to worship Mary or pray to the so-called saints? Doesn't. <laughs> we don't worship Mary. Um, I think that, that answer is going to surprise Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we give her honor because, remember, the first commandment forbids us to worship her. You know, only God can be worshipped or adored. So we follow the first commandment. But we also follow the commandment, honor thy father and mother, because Jesus said at the, at the crucifixion uh, to Mary, behold your son. Uh, he wasn't just speaking to John the evangelist, but John represented uh, all Christians. And so she became our mother by adoption, which makes sense. If we say Jesus is our brother, then let's say you get adopted into a family. Well, not only are your adopted parents your parents, but then your siblings are siblings by adoption. So uh, if Jesus is our brother by adoption, then Mary becomes our spiritual mother by adoption. So we honor her, but we do not worship her. And we give her the highest honor because she's the mother of Jesus. Uh, we give regular honor to the saints. But again, we don't. when we pray to the saints, it's not a prayer of worship. That's reserved to God. But remember, there's other forms of prayer. One is adoration. There's another prayer type called intercession, where we ask for somebody's uh, intercession or we pray for someone else. So when we're praying to the saints, we're asking them for their intercession that they would pray to God. And people say, well, you don't need to do that. Well, you don't need to do it on earth either. So if somebody comes to me and says, I'm having an appendix uh, surgery tomorrow, would you pray for me? Theologically, I could say, you don't need my prayers and just walk away. But that would be uh, impolite and rude and unchristian. So if you could ask me for prayers for you and I uh, consent, I'm uh, bumping Jesus out of the way because I'm praying to Jesus for you, then the saints can do the same thing. They can pray for us to Jesus and we're not, they're not bumping him out of the way. Got a couple of related questions we'll go back to back with here. Um, Kevin says, some Protestants say we're all priests and that they should go straight to God for forgiveness. So why do Catholics go to a priest for confession? Well, because we're not all, we, we share, there's a common priesthood uh, that we receive in baptism, and that's because we're part of the mystical body of Christ. But there's the ordained uh, priesthood uh, that I have and my, my fellow ordained uh, clergymen have, that um, we, in a very particular way, we can say the words of Jesus um, at the Mass, consecrate the bread and wine into his body and blood, and remember at the, uh, when Jesus rose from the dead on Easter, he appeared to the apostles, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. He did not do that uh, to everyone, he just did that to the apostles. And then the apostles, in turn, um, handed on that, uh, that gift of, of um, being able to forgive sins in what we call the sacrament of penance or the sacrament of confession or sometimes called the sacrament of reconciliation. So we see this throughout the church from the very beginning all the way up until today, even though at the time of Christ there were no confessionals. A priest didn't wear a stole, as they do today, but the power to forgive the church sees as being very explicit and given to these men who are configured as another Christ. 
And don't go anywhere. We're going to have the follow-up to that question in just a moment on this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. So we're not taking your phone calls today. Um, but if you would like to be part of a future mailbag program, all you have to do is send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. Openline is all one word. And put Monday or Father Trujillo into the subject line, and it'll get to the appropriate location. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday, a mailbag edition with Father John Trujillo. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. So we just answered Kevin's question about why you have to go to a priest for confession. Hannah writes in, since the bishops are the successors of the apostles and the gift of confession was passed on to them, why is it that a priest can provide forgiveness through confession even though they're not bishops? Ah, the same reason why we can say Mass, because only the apostles were at the Last Supper, so technically they were bishops, uh, they were the first bishops. The power to consecrate, the power to absolve sins, was given to the priests, the, the, the uh, elders, as, as sometimes is referred to in some scripture translations. Um, these are basically, um, you know, these are the men who were not bishops, but they were not deacons. All right, so the church, uh, very at the very beginning, saw um, the the three levels of holy orders, and the bishops, the uh, commissioned these men to do those things that they couldn't do because uh, the the sheer number, you know, like the deacons were created in in the New Testament because they took care of the poor, the widows, the orphans. Uh, it was very practical. Uh, they also uh, preached, but in the um, in the towns itself, because you had large growing uh, of the Christian community, there's no way, and a bishop could take care of all the spiritual needs and say mass everywhere uh, for everyone in his jurisdiction. So from very early, from the time of the apostles, you had these special men who were probably one of the 72 disciples were then made uh, bishop, or excuse me, priests, presbyters, and that power was conferred uh, to them and we, you know we see the word priest you know more than once uh, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament uh, particularly referring to Jesus thou art a priest forever so the concept of priest having the power of Christ is because the priest is configured to Christ just as the bishop does it's just that the bishop has the fullness of the of the priesthood he can celebrate all seven sacraments. Um, the priest can only do five, and then the deacons, um, you know, they can marry, and they can baptize. Uh, let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Hi, my name's Adam. How does the Catholic Church handle John 3.16, specifically the part about you won't perish if you believe in my Son, Jesus Christ? Whoever believes in him shall not perish. Um, does that not confirm salvation for John three. He believes in God. He truly believes that. Does that not give salvation to that individual? 
Thank you. Okay. I, um, I, I would ask an, a counter question to that. <laughs> How do the Protestants deal with the rest of chapter 3? Well, that's it. I was going to say, it's not just John 3.16, it's John 3.17 and John 3.18 and John 3.19. Because remember what Father Lev has always said, you can't take a text out of context. You have a pretext then. So to understand John 3.16, you have to understand John you know, 3.14 and John 3.17 and so forth. Um, to give you the fullness of what's being said. So it's not just that you say, I believe in Jesus, but it's the whole thing that you you uh, accept all his teachings, you follow his will, and you do not deny him. So it's not just something you say on your lips, because we see elsewhere in the gospel, uh, it's not those who say, Lord, Lord, it's those who do the will of the Heavenly Father. And I think that gives... Uh, perfect context because you have to take John three sixteen as in context of the other gospels in terms of, in, along with the epistles and the whole Bible, and as well as what is taught to us by sacred uh, tradition. You know, sometimes I think we run the risk of taking for granted our Catholic faith and have a hard time understanding why some people don't become Catholic despite what they they claim to believe. And we've got a question along those lines here from Van. He says, I want to convert, but I need advice on how to do this, particularly telling my parents. Ooh. <coughs> um, well, certainly your, your journey of faith is something you have to take very seriously. And um, we certainly want everyone who is, who, uh, is able to hear the word, hear the good news, to embrace it in its totality. And we're not saying that we're right and everyone else is wrong. We're saying we have the fullness of truth, not because we're know-it-alls as Catholics, but that the Catholic Church has the fullness of truth because we have both sacred scripture and sacred tradition, which are both from God himself. And we have the fullness of grace, all seven sacraments. So again, it would be like if you were going to go to, um, you know, <laughs> it's a bad analogy, but I can't think of a better one. If you go to a store that has everything you need, other than just, say, groceries, you know, a lot of stores now have more than food items because they figure you're in, you want to do one-stop shopping, okay? And uh, other than having just a little bit of this and that, imagine a store that has everything you could possibly need, not just what you want, but everything you you need is all in one place. And it's everything you need, and it's the best of what you need, wouldn't you go there, all right? And so that's what the Catholic Church provides is the fullness of grace, the fullness of truth. And once you realize that, you know, then you want to embrace it. Now, your family and friends, especially, say, your parents or siblings or children, may not understand, uh, but then that's a good opportunity for you for evangelization and uh, and witness. Not that you um, preach to them, but by your example, when they see you've become a better person, because of your um, coming into full communion, then they're going to want a part of it as well. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Barbara writes in, Can you explain why the Church allows First Communion for children prior to confirmation, while adults can't receive until after confirmation? Well, the only reason why adults don't receive it until after confirmation um, would be if um, 
you know, they were it's baptized. Really just kind of the the order of the liturgy. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's <laughs> on exactly. Easter I mean, vigil. <laughs> when, at the Easter vigil, if they're coming in as, um, let's say they're not baptized, so they're baptized, then they receive confirmation, and then Holy Communion is later on in the Mass. If they were baptized uh, as a Christian in another denomination, they're not baptized in the Easter vigil, but they would be confirmed and then uh, receive Holy Communion. Um, but there's no instance where they would be confirmed and then a day or two later receive Holy Communion. Um, they would receive Holy Communion at the same Mass. So it's, 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 it's chronologically, it's just maybe a matter of, of minutes, um, not, not any more than that. Uh, Robert would like to know, when is the soul formed and how? The soul is created at the moment of conception. And how it's done, God just creates the the principle of life. Uh, That's that immaterial part of who we are that makes us alive. Now, the physicality of it is that, you know, when the sperm fertilizes the eggs and then you've got an embryo, uh, that DNA is distinct from mom and dad. And so it's it's a completely different um, entity, and uh, we believe that at that moment the soul is created by God and infused into the embryo, because the embryo is now alive and uh, it's starting to grow and develop, and it can only grow and develop because it's alive, and he or she has this um, soul that has an intellect and a will that's starting to. Uh, grow and form because the body is growing because the the intellect uh, is needing needs the body uh, to get information and so as the eyes are developing and the ears and all the other senses all right the sense of of, of, of touch you know even um, the intellect depends on those um, parts of our human nature in order to get information and then the will can choose from. So we believe the soul is created at the moment of conception. There is no ensoulment later on, as some people had proposed. But uh, because way, way, way back in the ancient past, um, some of the Greek philosophers thought that's what happened because they erroneously, they didn't have the biology we have today. They did not know that you know the human embryo is human. They believed you started out as a plant, then you became an animal, and then you then you became a human. And then at that point, you know, your soul was uh, sort of uh, created or put in there. We don't believe that because, again, but because we have DNA, we have genetics, we have all kinds of uh, precise sciences that show us, you know, once conception takes place, that is a human being. It's not going to turn into a chicken. It's not going to turn into um, a cat or a dog. Uh, it, it's human. Did you happen to see uh, last week Lila Rose on the Dr. Phil show? No. Yeah, she, Dr. Phil uh, made the erroneous statement that there is no consensus among scientists as to when life begins. <laughs> and Lila Rose, in her very calm and characteristic way, assured him that there indeed was a consensus about when life begins among people of science. But she made the, one of the best points I've ever heard is as this little dialogue continued and Dr. Phil was not backing off of his position, um, she said, so... If it's not alive, why do you have to kill it? (laughs) Precisely. And if somebody kills a pregnant woman, they're charged with double murder. Uh, April writes in, what is the significance of Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit and not the Father? 
Uh, that's just the way it happened. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's part of the mystery. I mean, remember, you can't separate the three Well, you persons. really are a father in the truest <laughs> sense of the word. <laughs> yeah, go ask your mother. <laughs> because, I mean, what the Holy Spirit does is not done separately from the Father and the Son. So we say that the, Our Lady was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, it, we use language that we can grapple with. So, you know, the father uh, is father because of the son. And in our human experience, you know, we say, well, that's how, you know, our, our mother became pregnant with us is because of, uh, of the father. But the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is considered the spouse of the Virgin Mary because of that. But the Holy Spirit isn't doing this separately from the father and the son. And so then people say, well, then how could the Son help the Son? Well, that's the mystery of the Trinity, is that all three persons are one God. And yet in the second person of the Trinity, the, the, the Jesus, he has two natures, human and divine, that the other two persons don't have. And so it's in his human nature that we say it was through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, and, of course, um, through the cooperation of uh, his human mother, Mary. Uh, Johnny writes in, what does the Catholic Church teach about the origin of morality? Well, we certainly believe that morality is rooted, uh, first and foremost, as St. Thomas Aquinas says in the Summa Theologica, uh, in the eternal law of God. And the eternal law of God comes to us through the natural moral law, which we know by reason, but also through divine positive law, which we know uh, through the revelation. So the Ten Commandments were not the first time morality entered into the human equation. Uh, otherwise, uh, when Cain killed Abel, he would have been exempt because uh, the, Moses didn't appear on the scene yet. That's later on in, in uh, Exodus. But Cain killed Abel and he knew it was wrong because he had the use of reason. God had not yet said, thou shalt not kill, but Cain knew it was wrong. Just like uh, Moses knew it was wrong when he killed an Egyptian and he had to flee. And then later, he gets the Ten Commandments. So we have natural moral law that's knowable by reason to any human being who has the use of reason. And then we have revealed law uh, that comes to us directly from God, uh, like the Ten Commandments, which there's overlap. Okay, so thou shalt not kill. You can know at, any, at either level, faith level, level of reason. Uh, worshiping God, uh, not blaspheming, honoring his holy day, that's something that's directly revealed that we would not uh, know by reason by itself. And I think we have one more listener comment line to listen to. Yes, hello. My name is Mike. I have a question for Father John Tragelio, and this is regarding the special prayers. Some take the form of novenas. How do those work? Also, I wanted to know, where did the practice of penance prayers come about? Okay, well, first with novenas, uh, they go back to antiquity. Uh, it was the practice of, of celebrating nine days consecutively uh, was a way of, of showing um, that this was important, okay? And uh, we have uh, nine days, uh, you know, from the time of, um, say, uh, for Jesus' birth and nine days from his resurrection. Um, nine is considered the the top in terms of you want to show 
real importance. So usually here on earth um, in our contemporary times, people say, oh, three days is, is a, would be a lot too much. Um, but I remember growing up, you know, uh, hearing stories from my grandparents in the old country, there were such things as three-day wedding receptions and that. So nine days um, comes to us um, from biblical times. And then in the Christian uh, dispensation, uh, we liturgically celebrate nine days. Uh, so there's a nine-day, or um, it's an octave plus one of celebrating the birth of Christ, his resurrection, and so forth. So praying for nine days in a row uh, is where the novena uh, comes about. And so you pray nine days, uh, let's say uh, nine-day novena to St. Anthony or nine-day novena Our Lady of Sorrows, which we just recently celebrated on September 15th. Um, There are many, many, many novenas that are, you know, you might not see them all in the bulletin at your parish, but you can certainly look them up online, and there's a lot of books uh, on the novenas. It's a wonderful um, practice and tradition. Unfortunately, not a lot of parishes don't do them as much. When Father Brigenti, my uh, uh, co-author of our books, uh, when he was pastor in, in Flemington, New Jersey, they had um, the Novena of the Month Club. <laughs> I mean, every month, sometimes there was Novena after Novena, but it was beautiful. There was great participation of the faithful, and it connected them with, uh, you know, the communion of saints and seeing that the saints were not just floating around in heaven, but they're interacting with us uh, here on earth. Now, the pe- the penance prayers, I, I, I don't know if he's talking about... Um, the prayers that the priest gives you as penance, the Hail Marys, or any prayer the priest asks you to do can be penance prayers. And, you know, you and I say those uh, when we're, make, we're doing our penance after we go to confession. It's just our way of participating uh, in that act of, of, of uh, sorrow and contrition. It's the prayer of absolution that's the most important. Um, you're still required to do your penance, but if you forget you're still forgiven, all right? Just tell the priest next time you go, you forgot what your penance was or for whatever reason, you know, you were unable to complete it. Just mention that the next time. But if, like the nuns used to tell us, if you get run over by a truck, <laughs> you're still going to be in good condition if you had that absolution. Um, Thomas would like to know, does everyone have eternal life? And if so, why did Jesus say in John chapter 6, if you eat my body and drink my blood, you will have eternal life? Well, he's talking about eternal life in its fullest in heaven. We all have eternal existence, right? That's our, our, we, we, we are not eternal that we don't have a beginning or end, but we, are, uh, uh, we have an eternity in that our soul will never die. That is the beginning, but the soul is uh, immortal. It never dies. And that's why, you know, after you die, you're either going to heaven or hell. You might have a little time in purgatory. Um, So we say God himself is eternal because he has no beginning or end. You and I, we have an immortal soul, which one day after the resurrection of the dead at the end of time, when Jesus comes the second time and raises the dead and we have general judgment, those who have a glorified body will be taken to heaven, and those who are in hell will be reunited with their bodies. And uh, at that point, the body will be made immortal, but the ones in heaven are going to be very comfortable and happy. The ones who have their bodies in hell, it won't die, but it will suffer pain and torment for 
all of eternity. So think about that next time you want to sin. <laughs> uh, ben writes in, when debating the historicity of the New Testament with a non-believer, is there a comparable secular document that I can use as a backup? Well, there's certain references uh, in, in Roman documents. Um, you know, the fact that Jesus uh, existed, that he lived in, in the Holy Land, um, I think all the way up to the emperor himself, uh, there's references, if not, uh, if not in um, Tiberius's time, but I certainly think it was uh, uh, the emperor uh, Claudius and even maybe uh, Caligula, you know, there was some documentation that they talked about these Christians who followed, you know, uh, the teachings of this Jesus uh, of Nazareth. So we see some secular references, uh, not a lot because, you know, uh, at the time of the Roman Empire, uh, until it became Christian, Christianity was the enemy of Rome from their standpoint, not from Christianity's standpoint. But you see that, yeah, there is some corroboration. Uh, there is no birth certificate for Jesus, however, uh, although... Mary and Joseph had to go uh, for the census under Caesar Augustus and register. Um, so, I, yeah, there could be a, they could discover something uh, maybe because the Roman census was to be able to um, assess taxes and that. So I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere along the line somebody found something. But right now, in lack of there, uh, we have references of people of antiquity who do verify that uh, it was certainly believed and people were confident that this Jesus truly existed at one time. Trent says, I don't understand the Catholic view on birth control. If people don't want kids, why do you make them have kids? If we use natural birth control, why can't we use contraceptives? <laughs> well, the point is that when someone uses natural family planning, um, the point is not preventing birth, it's spacing out birth. And you're always open to the possibility that God may bless you with a child, even though you're using natural family planning. So natural family planning is not used as a contraceptive um, method. It's used to space out or plan the family. So you say, well, um, you know, if we have one baby every year or every two years, we might not be able to afford uh, that. But if we space them out a little bit more uh, every three years or something, that could be your goal. But if you're using natural family planning, uh, it may not work out that way, but the same with artificial contraception. They're not, they're not foolproof, and it's been established scientifically natural family planning is as effective, if not more, than artificial contraception. And here's the other really serious issue. Many of the art artificial contraceptive methods, particularly the pills, uh, act as an abortifacient, so they don't prevent conception. They're not contraceptive. What happens is after the um, egg is fertilized and the embryo is created, it prevents implantation of the embryo into the, the wall of the uterus. So then it acts as an abortion-causing uh, uh, effect. So then it's not contraceptive. It's, 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 cause, it's what we call abortifacient. It's causing an abortion. So that's why the church is saying that you know um, natural family planning is permissible. You're using the natural method. And you're open to the possibility, but you're saying all things being equal, we're trying to plan. Whereas with contraceptives, especially artificial contraceptives, you're completely blocking, you're separating uh, the conjugal act of, of sexual intercourse between husband and wife. Uh, Pope Paul VI made it clear, humani vitae, 
It's love and life. It's unity and procreative uh, powers that need to be as part of every act between the, the husband and wife. Uh, be sure to check out The Doctor Is In with our good friend Dr. Ray Garendi tomorrow afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern, and every day at 1 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday, right here on EWTN Radio. Um, George wants to know if there's a good argument for the Catholic view of baptism with respect to infant baptism. Well, we certainly see in the uh, New Testament referenced more than one occasion where whole families were baptized. Um, that was to underscore the fact that it wasn't just mom and dad. It wasn't just the head of the household, but it was the whole family. And we see, um, you know, the, the, the point that whole families were, if they were, God forbid, there was a tragedy where they died, they buried infants. And we've had the practice and we have re records of uh, going back to the patristics and apostolic times of the practice of baptizing infants because it's just a, like when you're born, uh, you re you uh, receive your citizenship in a sense. If you're born here in uh, the United States, you become a, a citizen. Whether you knew it or not, whether you agree with it or not, that de facto, and the same with your parents gave you a name, all right? You can legally have that changed if you want. You can uh, renounce your citizenship if you want, but you begin with an identity. And so um, from day one, Christians who were not born Christian, who became Christian, wasn't they just didn't want it for themselves. In the same way, you know, when my grandparents came from Sicily, you know, they wanted whatever kids they had to come with them, and they all came here to America, and they all became citizens, um, if not at the same time, very close to each other. So uh, what parent would not want to extend all those privileges and benefits of being a child of God uh, and, instead of making the kid wait. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater et Filius et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back at it tomorrow, talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Menezes. Until then... God bless.